Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys on this Labor Day weekend. Thanks for being here. My name is Lisa Tony. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the preaching team. And uh, as we get ready to start, we're going to get ready to receive this morning's offering. So thank you so much for being such a generous church. We just can't believe the ways that you guys give and invest in our church and our community. We truly believe that generous people transform this world. And so thank you for all that you do to do that. And hey, if you are visiting with us, please feel no obligation to give. This is something that we do as uh, people who are just committed to the mission and vision here that Jesus Jesus is doing, and all, both here at our church and all around the world, Jesus uses these, this money to impact and, and change lives. And thanks to all of you who give online, too. We appreciate all that you do um, so faithfully in your online giving as well. So ushers, I want to go ahead and invite you to come forward. And um, as I do that, hey, if you are visiting, I would love the chance to get to meet you. I'm going to be out in the lobby right after the worship service today by the Connect Center. So if you get a chance to come by and introduce yourself to me and say hi, I would absolutely adore that. Well, hey, before we get going today, I just thought we maybe should just take care of a little bit of family business, if, if that's okay with you. I, I don't know about you, but my heart has been kind of heavy this last month, uh, just seeing so many tragic things in the news, and especially how they relate to the church. There's been a lot of things that have been um, popping up that have just leaved, um, have left me sad and sometimes questioning and... Um, just not even sure how to process all of that. And, and I know most recently, last week, we were praying for uh, the church of Inland Hills, a community church in, in Chino, and um, we announced that their pastor had committed suicide. He uh, took his own life, a uh, young man, 30 years old, left his wife and three small boys and um, their church family. And, and our church staff has just been, you know, we've just been wrecked. We've just been grieved and have been, you know, just wondering how we can reach out and minister them as a sister church. And then, uh, you know, in the news, we have just been, you know, hit again and again with so many suicides that have been happening. I mean, it almost feels epidemic, doesn't it? Uh, what, what's happening. And it's hard to understand why and what's going on. And um, even after each service, I've had people come up and say, oh, I know of more suicides that have happened that haven't even made the news. I mean, it just... It just makes my stomach hurt. I mean, it's just so such a difficult time. And so we really wanted to come together as a church community. And, and next Sunday, we are going to, before we start our next series, we're just going to take a Sunday to, to kind of process that together. We're going to do an intentional sermon on dealing with depression and anxiety and, and how we do that as people of faith, what the Bible has to say about that. And I think that's important for us to do. I'm looking forward to that myself. And I think, you know, it's a great time. If you know someone who struggles with depression or anxiety, to invite them to come and be part of that next Sunday um, so that together we can move forward as a people with some hope and purpose. And here's what I know. I know that we have a very real enemy. Every day he wakes up and his entire plan for the day 24-7 is to go after you. It is to discourage you and to bring fear into your life, to tell you that you cannot do it, that this Jesus that you love is not enough, that his, his full-time job is to bring doubt and despair and pain. But here's also what I know. We serve a living and mighty Jesus who is alive and still on the throne. And he's not going anywhere. 
And no matter what Satan throws at him, he's not going to give up. He is not throwing in the towel. Jesus is always there for us. And he continues to give us what we need to face this life with hope and with truth, and with the power of the Holy Spirit. And because we have that in our lives, we do not need to be a people that live in despair. And here's also what I know. This is why it's important for us to gather together. This is why it's important that we do this every weekend. This is important why it's important to come to church and stand next together as brothers and sisters in Christ or sit next to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why we do this on the weekend instead of going to the beach or playing golf. We gather together to stand united and remind each other every single week that Jesus is still on the throne and that Jesus is enough for the things that we will face in this world. Now, I don't know about you, but I was reflecting back on um, 10 years ago, I was actually not sitting in church. 10 years ago, on this very day, I was having a baby. (laughs) It was my first baby. It was the first time I had become a mom. It was very exciting. And I have to tell you, I was extremely proud of myself because I went into labor on Labor Day weekend. Right? I mean, how awesome is that? God kind of rocked that for me. It was awesome. So my parents had just flown in. We'd had a, a quick dinner, and they, it was, they were on a three-hour time difference, so they went to bed, and I was, you know, enormous, pregnant, ready to have a baby. I went to bed. My husband was, you know, stressing, so he popped a sleeping pill, and as soon as he did that, my water broke. No kidding. But I am here to tell you that the effects of a sleeping pill are not as strong as adrenaline when you are going to have a baby. So we went on and we actually had three more babies after that. So a total of four kids that we are raising and we have not slept since. So, you know, it's just the way that we roll, I guess. Well, hey, Today we are going to dive into our last sermon in this series. We have been doing a tour of the seven churches in Revelation. It's a tour of ancient Turkey. They called it Asia Minor back in Bible days. And so we have been touring the different churches all along the way, hearing what Jesus had to say to each church and also to us through what those churches were experiencing during that time. So today is our very last Spot, our very last stop. You guys ready for our final stop? Laodicea is the name of the church and the community where we're going to be today, the very last church. Now, before they were known as Laodicea, their city was known, was, of, was known as Diospolis. It was a Greek community that was formed together to form this city. Now, Diospolis, it actually means um, the city of Zeus. And it means that because Zeus was the big God that they worshiped. It was, he was like the chief of all the gods for the Greek gods. He was the God of thunder. He was the God of the skies. He controlled all the other gods. He was mighty. He was strong. And everybody in the city worshiped Zeus, the Diospolis. So it was this community that had known itself to be strong and, and mighty and prosperous. Now, eventually, a new guy came into town, and he became the new king. His name was Antiochus II Theos. He became king in 261 BC and was king until about 253 BC. Now, Antiochus II, he loved his wife. He really loved his wife. And so he wanted to give her a present. And, you know, what do you do when you're king and your wife is queen and you want to give her a present? 
Another gold bracelet, another ruby ring. I mean, come on, right? What are you going to give her? So he came up with this idea. He decided to rename the city after her. So he renamed the entire city Laodicea after his wife, right? And all the women in the house said, aww, right? Okay, guys, you're going to have to step up your game after that one, right? Can you rename a city after your woman? I mean, wow, that's power right there. All right, so Laodicea became, uh, it was under Roman rule because Rome had come in and was kind of dominating everything. But Laodicea, that was cool with them. They were a Roman community and they were prosperous. They were right along a trade route. So that meant there's tons of people coming into their city. They were like the Wall Street of the ancient times. I mean, it was Mall of America on steroids. They had all kinds of trade industry coming in and out, which meant they were prosperous. They were so wealthy. I mean, show me the money. They were big time. They were one of the most prosperous, wealthiest communities in all of the ancient world. And because of this, they really didn't need anyone's help. They had all the money they needed. They could take care of themselves. They could buy anything they wanted. They could really do anything they wanted. And they were very proud of themselves for building kind of their empire, as it were, around them. Now, here's the one thing they couldn't control, the weather. So around 60 AD, when Nero was in power, a huge earthquake hit Laodicea. It, I mean, it totally wiped out the community. It was just devastated. And so Rome was quick, and they said, hey, you guys, we know this earthquake has taken out your city, and so we want to help you. We're putting together an aid package. We're going to come in. We're going to help you rebuild. We're going to send teams in, and we'll do this thing. And, you know, most communities, after a devastating earthquake would, uh, like that, would be like, oh, awesome. Thank you. We're so grateful. We're so humble. Thank you for your help. Not Laodicea. Oh, no. Laodicea came in, and there was like, no, we've got this ourselves. We can take care of ourselves. We don't need you, Rome. Thanks, but no thanks. We don't need no stinking aid package from you. We've got this. And so Laodicea was so fiercely independent, so proud of themselves, they would even turn down help from an earthquake because they were so used to taking care of themselves. I wonder, have you ever had that thought yourself? Have you ever had that thought of, hmm, I've got this. I'm good. I can handle this. You know, usually that thought comes into our minds, maybe just after we've had a little tiny bit of success. Maybe we've passed a test, or we've graduated from something, or we've gotten a new job, or maybe our boss has recognized us for something, or we've got some words of praise and some accolades, or maybe we actually got a job promotion or a raise, all good things, right? Maybe we hold a record for something and we're like, yes, I am untouchable. Maybe it's just, you know, we are really proud of the way we keep our lawn. It's just like the nicest lawn in the neighborhood. Or maybe our kids are just a little best, better dressed, or we drive the nicest car around, or our house is the cleanest house around, or I've got the most stylish clothes around. You know, sometimes we get those thoughts that sneak in the back door when we're not even looking, those little thoughts of pride that sneak in. Sometimes they just walk right through the front door and we're really proud of ourselves. Now, prime, pr pride is such a tricky thing when we are proud of ourselves because a, a little measure of pride is actually good and healthy. You want to, you know, have respect for yourself and feel like others are going to respect you. 
But then there's the shadow side of pride, right? The shadow side where all of a sudden we start thinking, I'm better than everybody else. Or maybe I deserve a little bit more than everybody else deserves. And that becomes the shadow side of pride. And that begins to make us ask the question, does pride serve us well or does it trap us? Now, as we get into the church of Laodicea, today is a good day for us to wrestle with some of those questions and ask some of those things for ourselves. Now, we know that there was a group of Christians that lived in Laodicea. Paul, who was one of the writers of the Bible, he wrote a different letter from Revelation. This book is called Colossians. And in this letter, he addresses Laodicea a few different times. Uh, he mentions them in Colossians 2.1. He says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. Now, Paul knew many of the people that were networking in the region. I mean, they never necessarily got to do face-to-face -face with each other, but they were great at letter writing. And so that's why we have this collection of letters in the New Testament, because they would write letters back and forth to each other. So Paul continues in Colossians 4, 12 through 16, and he references a few of his coworkers. <clears throat> Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and those at Laodicea and at Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read to the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul gives a shout out to some of his coworkers, Epaphras, who's working both in Colossae and Hierapolis and in Laodicea, kind of this network of churches in the region. He also gives props to Nympha, who was a female leader with a, house, a church that met in her house. And he corresponded with all of them through these letters. Now later, John, who was likely the last living disciple of Jesus, he had been exiled to the island of Patmos. It was a desert, deserted island. They were trying to just get John out of there so he wouldn't be very influential in the development of the church. But Jesus still had a plan for him. And so John wrote this, these, this letter, Revelation, and these were addressing each of the different churches. And so as he does this, it's about 25 years later from when Paul had been writing the letter in Colossians. And so when Paul was writing, he was praying that they would be mature and they would keep their firm footing. But when John writes them 25 years later, something had happened. Something had changed. Something had shifted in the community. And it's a good reminder that in only 25 years, a community can look completely different than when it looked 25 earlier, years earlier. And see, the thing is, the people of Laodicea, because the area had been so prosperous and so... Um, so wealthy, they really had begun to learn to lean on themselves rather than lean on Jesus to be the one that gave them the power and the authority and the vision for what they should be doing and how they should be doing ministry. You see, when money comes in, and there's a lot of it, sometimes money can meet our needs. And as we start having our needs met, we start realizing I don't know, do I need anything? 
I mean, this is my theory about why some of the churches in America have really lost their influence or their power or their significance in culture today. Because our, 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 our culture has become so wealthy, we just don't have the kind of needs that help us to rely on Jesus. Now, money is a powerful influencer, isn't it? I still remember when I was a little girl, I used to share a bedroom with my sister and we had our bedroom on the second floor. And I remember watching my sister once and she went and got some money out of her piggy bank and she carried it down the stairs and she handed it to my dad and my dad did the most amazing thing. He handed her dollar bills. I could not believe this. I was like, how did I not know this was possible in this household? So I ran up to my room, I emptied my piggy bank, I got a whole handful of pennies and I ran back down to my dad and I'm like, I want dollar bills too. And he looked at me, he said, Lisa, do you know how many pennies it takes to get a dollar bill? He said, no, but she got some. He said, well, your sister had done the math and that's something that you need to learn how to do. And I'm like, okay, dad. So I had to figure out that you didn't just get the money. You actually had to like do an, an even exchange for it. Money is not an evil thing. I mean, money can do wonderful things to bring good things into people's lives. Money is not the problem. The problem, the Bible tells us, is that when we have a love of money, when we love money, when money is what it's all about. We're actually warned about this in 1 Timothy 6.10. And this is what it says. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. Now Laodicea, this community was very successful. And when the leaders and the people and the church itself was so successful based on what they were doing in themselves, they didn't rely on Jesus. And when we don't rely on Jesus, when we let our own pride, our own abilities, our own importance be the way that we lead out in our lives, we sometimes become blind to the issues. We can become blind to the needs of the people surrounding us. See, Laodicea had everything they needed to be self-sufficient. Well, almost everything. There was one thing they didn't have. There was one thing that was their Achilles heel, water. They didn't have a natural source of water in their city. They didn't have a, a, a river or a, any kind of water source for them to access. But don't worry, I mean, this was Laodicea. They had it figured out. They found a solution. The Romans were amazing. They built these incredible aqueducts. These aqueducts were like ancient pipes that they figured out how to flow water down a mountainside and into the city. And so they figured out how to handle the situation. Now Laodicea was surrounded by two communities. You can see on the map this triangle, and about six miles away was Hierapolis. Now, Hierapolis was amazing because at Hierapolis, they had natural hot springs. I mean, it was like Jacuzzi Central. It was, you know, hot tub heaven right there. I mean, they had like a natural day spa going on at Hierapolis. Thousands of people would come to Hierapolis, and they would soak in those mineral hot tubs. They would even drink that nice hot mineral water because it would help ease so many of the different ailments that afflicted people. 
So they had hot water in Hierapolis. Now down in Colossae, which was about 10 miles from Laodicea, they had the Lycus River that flowed right through Colossus. And so this was a fresh flowing cold river. So on those hot days, they could run down, they could jump in the river and it would be refreshing and cool. They could go down in the morning, they could splash that cold water on their face and it would wake them up and rejuvenate them ready for the day. So their neighbors had hot water and cold water as sources, but Laodicea did not. So they decided to fix this by building this aqueduct from Hierapolis to funnel some of the hot water into Laodicea. It was a genius plan. They were going to get that nice hot water from Hierapolis. But here was the problem. By the time it traveled down the aqueduct pipes, it had lost its hotness and it just was kind of lukewarm. Eh, just kind of lukewarm, right? Have you ever been the last one in the shower lineup and there's no more hot water left for you, right? This summer I was visiting my family in Michigan, staying at my parents' house. There was 21 of us staying at their house. You did not want to be the last person in the shower lineup. There was no more hot water and it had run out. And so as Jesus starts right off the bat speaking to this church, he compares the church in Laodicea to this lukewarm water. This is what he says in Revelation 3, 14 through 16. To the angel or the leader of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen. This is Jesus. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, Eh. neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus was going to spit this church out of his mouth. I mean, Jesus was totally grossed out by this church. Okay, spitting, I spit you out. I mean, Jesus was just so hacked off by this church. Why was he so angry? Why was he so upset at the church of Laodicea? He said, I know your deeds. And your deeds are neither hot, they're not the healthy, hot mineral waters like Hierapolis that are, are bringing healing to people, and they're not cold, like the refreshing cold waters of the neighbors that you have in Colossae that are refreshing and help rejuvenate people. They're neither hot nor cold. They're just kind of lukewarm. Eh. And I, that makes me want to vomit. It makes me want to spit you out of my mouth. And Jesus says this because he has this understanding that what we do says a lot about who we are. In fact, James writes about this in scripture in James 2, 14 through 17. He says this, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You see, Laodicea was living it up, or at least they thought they were. They had wealth, they had success, they had prominence, they had a reputation, they had it all. They didn't need anyone or anything. And this attitude 
was really influencing their actions. It was influencing their deeds. It was influencing how they thought and how they acted. It was very different because they forgot how to connect with God, connect with others, and to connect others with God. I mean, this is our whole mission statement. This is what we are about, that we wanna make sure that we never forget how to encourage people to connect with God, connect with others, and connect others with God. This is the power of having Jesus in our lives and speaking through our words and our actions. When we are living in the daily, ever-present, all-consuming, overwhelming love of Jesus. It is so powerful. It is so filling. It is like an overflow that should spill out from us, just like a, a fountain that has water that overflows out of it. In fact, one of Jesus' names is, says that I am the living water, that Jesus is living water. And living water for Jesus is because he's our source, that it is an overflow in our lives. Now, I'm a Michigan girl. I grew up in Michigan, and so I grew up around all these lakes that are spring-fed. That means that there's these, these springs that bubble up from the ground underneath, and it's a fresh water source, and it keeps bubbling up. But there's an also outlets to these lakes, and so there's a river that flows out from them. <clears throat> because of that, it's like, a, it's like a living water system where the water comes in and water flows out. Water comes in and water flows out. And so if we think about this in terms of the church of Laodicea, there was an aqueduct that was built and the water came into Laodicea to give them water to drink so they would not die. But it was not flowing out. Jesus was pouring into their lives but there was no overflow out from the love of Jesus into their lives. And Jesus called them out of it. He said to them Colossians, in Colossians 3.17, you guys are saying, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, what? Jesus, hold on, what are you saying? We are, we're fine. We're doing good. We've got this. I got this. We're not wretched and poor and naked. I've got clothes. We've got really cool medical centers here. We've got all kinds of shops. We are a prosperous community. But Jesus wasn't buying it because Jesus can always see more clearly than we can see ourselves. Jesus is so good at that. And so he still called them out on it. And he said, here's what I want you to do. So in Revelation 3.18, he says, I counsel you. I'm going to give you some wise counsel here. Here's what it is. To buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And the Laodiceans just must have laughed as they heard this. They're like, what are you talking about? We don't need to become rich. We've already got money. We can order anything we want off of Amazon Prime. We got the latest tech from Apple. We are golden, Jesus. Or maybe when Jesus said this, I want you to buy from me gold. Maybe they thought, hmm, I can get more money. I can get more gold. And they leaned in. Because no matter how much money we have, whether we have a lot of it or we have enough of it, when anybody ever starts saying, I have money for you, what do we do? We lean in because we all want more money. 
We can't get enough of it. And Jesus says, you know what? I've got a different kind of gold for you. I've got a kind of gold that is different from the kind that you buy and spend in your culture, in your shops, in your businesses that is making you prosperous. I have a completely different kind of gold that has been refined in fire. Now, the refining process for gold was something that they would have been familiar with. So gold, they would put it in these kind of these, these crucibles, they were called. It was kind of a, a pot that could withstand a great temperature. They would heat this metal up to over 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, it was hot. And when they did that, that would make the impurities rise to the surface. And it was the craftsman's job to skim the impurities off the top, and that would keep the product of the gold becoming refined and much um, more pure. So this craftsman is he worked on this process of refining the gold. It was a dangerous job. It was hot, it was sweaty, it was difficult work. But it was worth it because it refined the gold and made it more valuable. So as Jesus says, I want you to buy from me gold that has been refined in the fire. He is talking about his people, his church, having a kind of faith that has been refined by the trials that you face, by the sufferings that you endure, through the questions that don't make any sense. Jesus says, come to me and buy this gold. Because if you come to me with every question you have, if you come to me with every hurt and disappointment, if you come to me for counsel, I will continue to give you the words that you need. I will continue to speak into the actions that you need to do to represent yourself as my person in this situation and to live in a way that is completely countercultural, that no one's going to understand except me. And that is what I am calling you to do, to buy gold, to buy faith that has been refined by the fire. Peter talks about this in the New Testament as well. In 1 Peter 6, uh, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8, he says this, In all this you greatly rejoice. Now now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, real gold is precious, and it is expensive, and it's valuable, but it will pass away. But faith that has been refined in the fire of our sufferings and in our trials is more precious than gold. It shines brighter than the brightest gold, and it is something that will never pass away. Now, the Laodiceans, they actually didn't mine gold. They didn't have gold in their communities, but they had sheep. They had black sheep. These sheep were rare. They were precious because they had this ebony black wool. It was a very exclusive wool in the community. And so they kind of had like this high-end fashion district. They had this famous soft raven black wool that they could put together into dark black ebony blankets and robes and clothing. I mean, they were the black sheep of the industry and it paid. 
it paid big money. It made them much more wealthy and, and famous. It was excellent business. I mean, after all, everyone looks good in black, right? I mean, they could offer you a really slimming robe out of their black wool that they had for you. So this is what Jesus says to them in verse 17. He says, you say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Like, Jesus, we're not naked. We got plenty of clothes. We got nice clothes. We got clothes that nobody else has out there. We've got this beautiful, black, chic, fashionable, profitable industry. And Jesus calls them to do something extremely different. He is going to call them to wear white clothes. So let's go ahead and go to the next verse. Um, and white, oh sorry, it's right there. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. So Jesus calls them to do something completely opposite of what their culture was. They were producing black fine clothes and Jesus says wear white ones. Now Jesus has nothing against black sheep or black wool or black clothes. Those are all perfectly well and fine. But what Jesus is saying here is I want you to stand out. I I want you to do something different than what culture tells you to do. And white was an important color for Jesus because it symbolized the purity of our sin. So when Isaiah, one of the writers of the Old Testament, talks about it, he says, I want you to be as white as snow and pure, as pure and, and as in contrast to the crimson red of our sin. He says it this way, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So in a prosperous time and a prosperous town, Perhaps this, perhaps this church had forgotten how to be generous, how to think beyond themselves and to look out at a world in need. And that's what Jesus was calling them to do. And Jesus is going to do this in one more way. He also wanted to address that Laodicea was known for a, a, being a famous medical center. They had this special rock in Laodicea that they would smash into a powder and they would apply to people's eyes for all kinds of different eye illnesses. People would come all over into this region for this medical center. And so Jesus addresses this. He says, um, you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind. I mean, this would have stuck out to them and said, we're blind? No, we have these famous medical centers for, for eye salve that helps us to see. And he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold or find in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. See, Jesus had this special eye salve that would open the eyes of the blind so that they could see the spiritual needs of people around them. Jesus loved to do this. He was really good at this. Jesus loved to open the spiritual eyes of people so much. This was part of his like mission statement. This was part of his core values. I mean, we see this in what he says in Luke 4, 18 through 19. As he stood up, as he proclaimed kind of his mission for what he was all about, he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I love this. 
And I know this to be true because my, one of my daughters was born with a blind eye. She could not see out of her eye. And we have been on a two-year journey of praying and asking and watching God heal her blindness. She has started out and her eye was assessed at 21,000. Now, blind, a blind eye is 2,200. A healthy eye is 2,020. And we are at 21,000. And through surgery and incredible doctors and incredible treatment and a whole lot of prayer, we have heard, had my girl move from 20,000 to 2060. She can see out of that eye. She can see, and it's because Jesus is healing her. Jesus is healing her blindness. And I know that Jesus loves to do this. Not only can he heal physical blindness, but he can also heal our spiritual blindness and give us eyes to see when we cannot see the world around us as Jesus did. See, Laodicea, they had no needs. They said, we're good. We're good. But Jesus saw them so deeply. Isn't that awesome about who Jesus is? He can always see us in a different way than the world sees us. He can see us more clearly than the people that know us the best can see us. Jesus could see the church in Laodicea and Jesus can see us. He can see you. He can see those areas where he wants to open our eyes to the spiritual needs around us. Because in spite of their banks, they were beggars. In spite of their fashionable clothes, they were naked. In spite of their eye centers, they were blind. See, we all stand in desperate need for Jesus. We all stand in need for him to be our healer and to open the, our eyes so that we can see. But there was great hope for the church of Laodicea. Jesus was frustrated with them, angry even, so much so that he wanted to spit them out. But do you remember that one time Jesus spit in the ground and he made some mud and he applied it to the eyes of a blind man and said, go wash in the waters and that blind man could see. So Jesus can even use his spit to heal people in the mighty power of Jesus. And I believe there was hope for the church of Laodicea and there's hope for us today because Jesus said, I counsel you. We go to counselors when we need a new perspective. We go to counselors when we are ready to change. We go to counselors when we need some hope in our lives to give us a fresh perspective. And Jesus said, I will counsel you. And this means he was giving them the opportunity to change and he gives us that opportunity to change as well. Jesus continued in Revelation 3, 19, and 20, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, I love these verses because it kind of talks about Jesus as a parent's love, right? I mean, a parent's love when kids are little, man, you just like keep hanging in there and like picking up those shoes and their socks and their toys and disciplining them for the things that they need. When they get older, you're like, oh my goodness, you're disciplining them and counseling them through staying out late and through, you know, staying on their phones too much. And then when they get older still and they're adult children for maybe the decisions they're making with your grandkids or with the way they spend money. Um, but Jesus says he's going to stand at the door and knock. 
Now, when I was growing up, my grandma had this awesome house. It had a long hallway, and off the hallway were all of these doors. And when my sisters and I were like kind of trying to come up with games to play, we would go and we would close all the doors down the hallway. And then some of us would hide behind each of the doors, and then one of us would stand out the main door and close it and count. It was kind of like glorified hide-and-seek. But we were super creative, and so we called this game Doors. <laughs> we are good like that. And so the person who was counting, after they counted, they'd have to walk down the hallway and they would just listen at each door to see if they could sense the presence of one of my sisters. And if we were hiding behind the door, we would stand and we'd stand so quiet and we'd wait to see if she could find us and we would be listening for that knock. We would wonder if that knock was going to come and that door would be opened and we would see my sister See, Jesus is standing at the door and he is knocking, just ready to come into your life, into the situation that you think is hopeless, where there is no hope. Jesus says, I am hope. Come to me and let me spill into that situation. Let me speak into it. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team to come up. And as they do that, I just want to finish with this cool part here that says, as he opens the door, I will come in. And not only is he going to open the door, he's going to eat with that person. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. A meal with Jesus, right? That's going to be awesome. And this is so cool here because the word that is used in the Greek here talks about a very special kind of meal. The Greeks had three different words to describe breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The word they used for breakfast was ekratisma. And that was the word they used for breakfast. And it was kind of different um, in the ancient world. They would usually just have like a piece of bread dipped in some wine. That was their breakfast, right? Breakfast of champions right there, baby. Me bread and wine for breakfast. And then the second word that they would use is aristan, and that was the midday meal. That was the meal that they would have for lunch. And usually this was, again, was a quick meal. They would pack it, and they would sit in the fields where they were working to eat, or they, on the roadside, or in the city square, because they didn't want to spend a lot of time on this meal, because they wanted to take advantage of the light before the light was done for the day. But the last meal of the day, the last meal was called a defnan, and this was the evening meal. This is the meal where they could take their time. The day's work was over. They could process with their friends and their family and their loved one what had happened for the day. They'd have a leisurely meal. It would be long, and they'd spend time talking. And this is the word that is used. I will come in and eat with you. Jesus wants to come in and dine and spend time and talk and, and process your day and figure out what is going on with you. This is the kind of Jesus that we have. He finishes this passage and it says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we finish up this, this time that we've spent just considering what was going on in Laodicea and really just asking Jesus what he has for us today as well, I think one of the things that really, um, as I was spending time with this, just really impacted me was, to, was thinking about to reflect Jesus in all I do. Lord, I just need to constantly say less of me and more of you. Less of me and more of you. 
And so as we get ready to close today, and the worship team's going to lead us in a time of, of a kind of closing worship, and I want to invite you, if you haven't had a time of communion, you're welcome to come forward and, and uh, take the communion, um, take it back to your seat as we worship. You're welcome to do that. And um, I just want to pray for us that as we go forward, that we too will be able to say, Lord, in all that I do, less of me and more of you. Jesus, we love you and we're so grateful for the time that we've been able just to spend this morning considering your words to Laodicea and what your words are for us. And Jesus, as we finish up this morning, God, we just invite you to to speak right now as we finish up with this worship song. Lord, would you just even reveal to us where you wanna open our eyes to see things differently because of you. Would you just open our eyes so that we um, can say that you have healed us from spiritual blindness and that you are doing things to open our eyes to the needs around us. And Jesus, more than anything, we wanna reflect you to this world. So in order to do that, would you help us to say, Lord, in all I do, less of me and more of you. Amen.